Hello everybody, I'm Dwayne Mancini and welcome to another episode of MedTech Money brought to you by Project MedTech. If you need anything from us or would like to suggest a future guest, you can email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. And you can always visit our website, www.projectmedtech.com or follow us on LinkedIn. If you're enjoying this content, don't forget to check out our other podcasts by searching Project MedTech on your favorite podcast platform or by heading to our website. Project MedTech is an interview style podcast on the MedTech industry where guests share advice, stories, pitfalls, trends, and innovations. In this episode, our host, Giovanni Loricella, and our guest, Louis Cannon at Biostart Capital, discuss the importance of CEO motivation in startups, why he became a venture capitalist, the importance of his experience as a practicing physician, why they are geographically agnostic, who typically are their limited partners, what round they typically invest in, what boxes need to be checked before investing, what he looks for in a pitch deck, and so much more. So without further ado, Giovanni's discussion with Lewis Cannon. Medical innovation starts with medical discussion. Talking about the future and what comes next with Project MedTech. Louis, thank you very much for being here today. I'm excited about this one. I've chased you down and I finally got you on the podcast. <laughs> So very pumped about this one. This is the MedTech Money Podcast Series, powered by Project MedTech and sponsored by Lifeblood Capital. And the reason why we're here is I've talked to MedTech entrepreneurs as well as investors just like yourself from around the world. And I've discovered that there's no silver bullet, magic, or even specific formula about how to raise or invest capital in MedTech. So my goal here is I'd like to extract insights and also your stories and experience so that we can quote unquote demystify this process and help med tech innovators benefit from the information. And our audience typically listening in here um, are med tech entrepreneurs and investors. So what I'd like to do is share your stories and advice with what I imagine is that first time founder or CEO who has literally zero clue of what lies ahead of them on this journey of raising capital. And the best place to start is from learning from experience from professionals just like you, and so this discussion that we're going to dive into is, um, um, I'll burst the bubble, we're going to get into your background, but you are the founder and also managing partner of Biostar Capital. We're going to learn about what it's like to become a venture capitalist after having an amazing career in, or I should say being a medical doctor, a physician, and, and we're going to cover some gaps in between. So what is Biostar Capital? What is it like being a physician who becomes a venture capitalist? Why is that even a career opportunity or alternative for a physician? And then obviously what Biostar Capital is in terms of a investor in the styles that you guys invest in, and we'll break out some of those nuances. So before we get into your background, as well as Biostar Capital and what you guys are doing over there, uh, I have several open-ended questions that we're just going to rip open and bust open and have some fun with this conversation. So the first one, do you believe that people and money are the lifeblood of a medtech startup? Why or why not? Am I missing anything or would you like to add anything else? Uh, yeah, first of all, it's a privilege to be here. I'm really excited about it. And uh, I've seen some of the previous podcasts and uh, you know what you're bringing to the table, Giovanni, is pretty excellent. Um, money and people. Um, I, I, I absolutely agree uh, that the person, it makes a huge difference in the outcome and success of any innovation or any technology. 
And the fuel, the gas <laughs> that moves the people and the innovation technology is money. The only thing I would add to that, in my opinion, is purpose. If someone feels something and is really motivated to make it work, they want to make a difference in, in, in what I do, patients' lives, that motivating factor is huge. And that's one of the things we really look for. We, we aim to make a difference in people's lives. And if we can do that, and if the entrepreneur or the CEO has that belief, um, then uh, that, that is, a, I'd say, a third part of the triangle of success, people, money, and then purpose. And we're going to get into your background. I'm going to keep on mentioning that, but you have been living a life of a physician and a practicing physician and now a practicing venture capitalist investing in regulated technologies for the most part within this medical field. So you're dealing with patients' lives, you're dealing with the FDA, you're dealing with all these uncertainties, if you will, and doing business in between. Do you believe in luck and how much does <laughs> luck play into the success of a med tech startup or even med tech for that matter? It, it, Giovanni, I, I really, <laughs> I think you can make your own luck, but but luck is a big part of the the, the, the play. Seriously, you know, you can't really anticipate a downturn like we experienced in two thousand eight. You know, where milestones and tranches really changed. Uh, it's a lot about the people you know and the syndication and the relationships. But uh, <laughs> luck is just. It's a big part of the formula. I don't know where it is. I hope it's kind of toward the end of the formula, but it's definitely a piece of the formula. And, and having run and founded and led Biostar Capital for all these years, you've talked with a lot of entrepreneurs, you've seen a lot of slide decks, and you've obviously made investments into some of these startups. So when you look into the eyes of these entrepreneurs, what is the most investable skill set or characteristic of a med tech entrepreneur? And possibly even to simplify that, the one thing you look for in every entrepreneur that you invest in? Yeah. So, uh, you know, one of the main things is purpose. Um, you know, they, they really want to uh, and need to make the company work. If someone is a part-time CEO and they've already made hundreds of millions, they probably don't have the motivation, the purpose of someone that says, I am going to now dedicate my life the next 10 years. I'm going to leverage my time, my money, my family, my resources, and my money to make it work. If I have a CEO that wants to do that, that, that that's a big factor in what I look for in someone I'm going to invest in. The second thing that I look for in someone that I'm going to invest in is, have they made it work in the past? You can have a lot of motivation. You can have a lot of purpose. But, but if you haven't been there before, you can't really anticipate the roadblocks and the speed bumps that you're going to encounter. So it's nice to have someone that's been through you know, the, the anguish, been through the, the thrill and agony sometimes of defeat, uh, going to bed and, and wondering whether you're going to get the next dollar. Is your company going to get bank, go bankrupt? Are you going to have to lay off employees? Those are the kind of motivations that I look for in a CEO and some of the, uh, the factors that would uh, allow us to bet on that CEO with, with someone else's money. So we're, we're, very, uh, we're, we're very careful about that. So that, that you bring up a great point, and I was going to go right into the next question, but I want to do a part B on that one based on what you just brought up. Um, <clears throat> so you, you need this purpose. And like you said, if someone's been there too many times and been too successful, there might not be that burning 
purpose that you're looking for. But you can't, on the flip side, take someone who's completely nascent or green. You need someone who's been through at least a little bit once before, maybe twice, and has enough purpose left in them, um, but also the experience. Very recently, we just did another podcast with a first-time entrepreneur who went through that very crazy struggle of being an engineer, never having anything in business, um, taking the master's thesis and PhD thesis that he created, and then turning that idea into a company and then figuring it all out in terms of entrepreneurship. I had literally zero background in business, no experience, came right out of academia. And we went through and had this conversation on this podcast series about because I've met him before in person, we, we've talked about actually TCT 2019 um, in San Francisco is the first time we met. And, and he asked me, he goes, listen, this is the technology. I don't have any experience, but I know I can engineer good technology. Do I need a CEO? But at the same time, I don't have the money to hire a CEO, but how do I get a CEO? Because I don't know if I'm the right person to be able to do this. Long story short, you fast forward at three years and there was a press release that just came out that he did raise and that he's from the Netherlands. He That's just awesome. raised 1.8 million as a seed round for, for a class three medical device. So um, he turned it around and he did it without business experience. But to your point, you as an investor, you can't have a lack of purpose and too much success and too much part-timeness, but what do you feel? And, and you mentioned right down the middle. So it's always nice if they have that experience if possible, but what's your take on first-time entrepreneurs, first-time CEOs, ones that have never been there and done that yeah. before at all? Yeah. Your, your friend was in a tough spot and congrats to him for, for making it uh, through. That's not easy. Um, my, my experience is that founder, that innovator, needs to be able to get some funding. And I think a lot of it is, is friends, it's family, it's angels that believe in the passion and innovation in the device. They may not be as squared on, I need a return on investment because I have to do my next fund. So, you know, that initial $1.8 million that you mentioned is really critical. It's very hard to bring in an experienced CEO when you haven't raised capital. <laughs> you know, they're not going to come in and, 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 and hope that, that everything aligns. So that, that initial founding capital that he was able to put together is really, really critical to the success of the company. And that's a big speed bump that he went over. Couldn't agree more. Well, thank you for shedding some light on that. The, the next question I wanted to jump in and on is a physician turned venture capitalist, and you've seen a lot in between and within both capacities. If you knew what you know now, about being a med tech investor, right? So those days when you were still a practicing physician before you've went to the dark side of venture capital and had <laughs> business, would you do it all over again, being a venture capitalist after now knowing what you know? So, uh, so Giovanni, I was a practicing uh, physician, interventional cardiologist in, until about three years ago. So I had overlapped when I was a cardiologist and a venture capitalist for about 10 to 15 years. And now I've left uh, medical practice. And I got to tell you, I missed it. I, I, I really miss the patient interaction. I miss uh, uh, making a difference in a patient's life. Uh, I, I, I loved being able to get in there and stop a heart attack and, and do you know, technically uh, what we were able to do. Uh, the, the, the movement to venture capital was for a couple of reasons. Uh, number one, honestly, call, you know, weekends, nights, you know, 12 days in a row, you know, losing patients, 
uh, having a couple of days off uh, was tough on the family and on me. And I was lucky enough to have, uh, you know, business experience and I'd raised a couple of funds and we'd been relatively successful. So I was able to segue into full-time venture capital, but without my experience as a practicing cardiologist and without being on the scientific advisory boards of these companies and without having invented, you know, a couple of uh, innovations and had intellectual property, I don't believe I'd be the venture capitalist that I am today. I, I really think of every innovation from the need to the patient, the need of the physician, what it takes to bring it into the house, what it takes to bring it into the system, what the payer expects, you know, in terms of CMS, how to get through the FDA, how to do a research protocol. Those are all things that I think that background of being a physician really uh, culminated in, in me hopefully being a, you know, a good venture capitalist. And then now going into my next question about being this venture capitalist, what you thought before when you were simply only a physician and not an overlapping physician VC, when you learned about this world of VC um, or even heard of your other colleagues, et cetera, in, in, the, in the market, is it glamorous being a med tech investor? I mean, this whole idea of like, you hold the purse, right? If I, all these entrepreneurs around the world, oh, you can't make a move or you can't do anything wrong. There's the investor. I need that money. I can't do anything. I have to be perfect. Um, there's like this glamorousness or um, just this idea of glamour being a, a VC or, or an investor. Is it or is it hard work? Yeah, I don't feel the glamour at, at all, really. Uh you know, I'm not in Silicon Valley or on, on Wall Street or anything like that. I'm in Michigan. Uh, so, you know, when I go to the grocery store, <laughs> you know, no one even knows I'm a venture capitalist. They, they still remember me as Dr. Cannon. So uh, I don't think there's any glamour in it at all. Uh, there's a lot of uh, friends that I have and physicians that are innovators that I've had to say no to. And that, that's actually really hard. Um, it's also difficult being a physician entrepreneur. Uh, because, you know, I didn't go through the usual MBA. I've never, you know, I've, I've been to the building, uh, you know, the Goldman building in New York. I went in, I went out. That's as close as I, I, I've come. So uh, I think we're a little bit different brand. And when Biostar comes into the program with the NEAs, and the Deerfields and the Kaisers or, you know, other big, uh, you know, groups or systems, we're, we're a little bit different. Um, so uh, I, I don't feel that glamour. I, I feel that need to prove myself constantly, which is probably who I am internally, but uh, I don't think there's much glamour to it at all. And then you founded this firm, Biostar Capital. And I always like this question because you never know where it's going to lead. Sometimes it's short, sometimes it's dynamic and long, sometimes it's philosophical, but what does the name of your company mean? Why Biostar? Oh, uh, okay. Uh, that's it. Uh, good question. So um, Biostar is founded basically by physicians. And what I've done is I've taken 20 or 30 leading physicians internationally in their areas of expertise and made them partners in the fund. So those are, in my opinion, the stars. Okay. So that's where the star came from. Bio, instead of saying med or health, gives you the feeling of biology, physiology, that kind of thing. So that's how Biostar Capital, you know, came to be. Very cool. Very cool. So the man behind the voice for all those listening in right now, we, we got a little flavor of, of how he thinks and some of the questions that we've asked thus far. 
Now it's time to find out who you are. So Louis Cannon, Dr. Cannon, who are you? Where are you from? How did you build your life? And obviously we now know it's been the balloons pop. You, you're a practicing interventional cardiologist or were up until very recently. You're a venture capitalist, but fill in those gaps. Um, where'd you start your life? How'd you build your life? You fell into being a practicing physician and then you fell into being a venture capitalist. When you get to that, then we'll jump into what Biostar Capital is. But first you, who are you? And then who is Biostar Capital? But we'll get there. Who are you? Okay. Uh, um, well, thanks. So maybe an unusual trip here. Um, I, had, uh, I had troubles uh, in high school. I didn't do very well at, at all uh, in high school. I graduated somewhere around a 1.8 or 2.0 GPA, but I was lucky enough to be a good wrestler and baseball player. And my coach knew a coach and I got into one college on academic probation um, and uh, went to class, stopped partying, didn't get any fights anymore, <laughs> followed the law and uh, turned it around in college. Um, so to those out there that are, that are struggling, may not have the, the pedigree that a lot of uh, uh, people do, uh, just keep at it. Uh, you know, you can, uh, you can truly get there. It's a marathon, not a race. Um, and then uh, met the love of my life at college. Um, uh, she eventually got her PhD in English. Um, I always wanted to be a wrestling coach and uh, maybe a biology teacher, but she convinced me to take the medical college admission tests. I took those and did, did pretty well. So I had medical schools come to me and say, you know, uh, do you want an interview? And I said, sure, I'll interview and you know, maybe see what being a doctor is like. So I went to medical school differently. I, I was more tell me about being a doctor because I'm not sure I want to do it. I think that helped. Went to medical school, uh, then did emergency medicine, then internal medicine, then cardiology, then interventional cardiology. Then uh, wrote a grant on fluorocarbons, uh, which was the ability to carry oxygen through blockages in arteries and spent a year basically giving pigs heart attacks, decided that that wasn't really what I wanted to do. So I uh, went into practicing cardiology, interventional cardiology, where is where you intervene if someone's having a heart attack. So two in the morning, someone's having a heart attack, you go in, you open the block, could you suck out the clot and came up with an idea or two to make that a little safer. Um, uh, got some patents issued. Uh, one of those was licensed to Boston Scientific, another to Medtronic. Uh, they didn't really come out to be much uh, of anything at all. Um, uh, ran and started a research center uh, that became one of the largest privately owned research centers in the United States. And then um, over a coffee, a cognac and a cigar with some of the thought leaders in cardiology said, you know, we're reviewing all these companies for Boston Scientific or Medtronic or J&J. We can make such an impact. If, you know, we could help them with, you know, what's the correct animal study? What's the research protocol? Are they developing something that's already been developed at Medtronic? So I said, we ought to do our own venture capital company. Started first Biostar Ventures One, which was uh, somewhere around 19 million, $20 million. Took me 40 years to raise. I had the Buick dealer, the garbage guy, you know, everyone you can imagine in the community. And um, eventually now we're at uh, Fund Five. And as I said, I was in interventional cardiology for 20 plus years and then just left it three years ago for full-time venture capital. And uh, the other part that's Louis Cannon is I'm blessed with a great wife, three phenomenal kids, three grandkids, an awesome dog named Remington. So, um, so it's all been good so far. 
That's awesome. That's a great. <laughs> and so you, you you alluded to Biostar, and, and that's such a cool story of how we got here. Even though there was a, a long period of overlap, so you were a practicing physician and a venture capitalist for 10, 15 years, like you mentioned. So here we are, you being the venture capitalist that you are now. You're running Biostar. You founded Biostar. What is Biostar? So imagine if we just take a quick pause. You're in room of a million people or 8 billion people because everyone in the world listens to MedTech Money Podcast, just so you know. Um, so you should. should. <laughs> so as soon as you tell the world what Biostar Capital is and does, um, everyone's going to know. So if you could be on this loudspeaker and let them know what it is that Biostar Capital is, what's the investment thesis, what do you typically invest in the geography, the check size, what don't you invest in, all that stuff. Here's your moment to shine. What is Biostar Capital? Okay, so thanks. So Biostar was founded by clinicians, thought leaders, uh, physicians, um, renowned in the medical space for innovation and technology. And we're doing this in collaboration with very successful investment business professionals, CEOs uh, previously of companies like Boston Scientific and, and Corindus. Our team's primary focus is investing in technology that makes a difference in patients' lives as well as a return on investment. Because we know if we don't get a return on investment, there's not gonna be a Biostar Fund 6. But, but the main issue, the main focus for us is to make a difference in patients' lives with transformational, not iterational technologies. We hope that we conduct our business with the utmost of skill and integrity. Uh, we, I think, alone or uniquely understand the needs of physicians, patients, government regulators, payers, and then eventually our acquirers. So, so that, that's Biostar. What about geography for all those international or global, for that matter, um, entrepreneurs listening in? You mentioned earlier you were based in Michigan. Do you do coast-to-coast -coast investing? Are you proudly waving the flag of only Midwest investments? Do you invest in Canada, Argentina, Africa, and China? Do you do the major markets of North America or U.S.? Europe, maybe even touch Israel. Where are your markets? We are absolutely geographically agnostic. If there is a way to make a difference and make a dollar, we're in it. So uh, we've just, did, uh, just invested in a micro robotics company from Italy. Uh, we've invested in a couple companies from Israel. Um, we are involved now in China or we're involved in China. So um, we'll hold the the proud flag of something in the Midwest, but um, we have a fiduciary obligation to do the right thing for our uh, investors. And uh, if it's in the Midwest, all the better. We've invested in two companies that I'm aware of in the Midwest. So we are very agnostic in terms of geography. And I don't need names or anything like that, but earlier you said that Biostar Capital was founded by physicians, right? And, and even when you raised your initial fund, the garbage man, the post office, everyone was involved in terms of the community. Um, is it still a physician-founded situation where there, there are check sizes that are coming from practicing physicians who just want to make a difference and invest, or are your LPs grown? Are they like the, the typical LPs that we hear of some from some of the bigger funds that are universities or hospital settings or business endowments or something like that? Um, what, what's the type of LP, or is it just high net worth individuals? Uh, uh, no, we, we've had... Uh... 
we've had, I'm trying to think of what, 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 I, what I can and what I can't say. So we've had a multi-billion dollar hedge funds. Okay. Uh, we have had a strategics uh, like, I think I can say Boston Scientific, Johnson, Johnson, Synthes uh, that have been involved. Uh, uh, Morgan Stanley Fund has been involved. So if you look at the number of investors, we, we have a lot of physicians. I, I mean, maybe 60, 70 physicians, but the amount of capital that those physicians bring is a relatively small portion of the fund. So, uh, you know, we, we aren't big enough, which is a tough space for venture capital. You know, we're gonna be in the 150, $175 million range. So, you know, to get Fireman's Fund or Harvard Endowment or, um, you, know, uh, you know, any big billion dollar foundation or fund is really hard to invest in Biostar because their check writing is too small um, and they don't want to invest $10 million or 15, 20 million in a fund like ours. So we're in a difficult, not a difficult situation, but we need to go to high net worth individuals. We need to go to single family offices, multiple family offices. And then uh, those that don't mind, you know, writing a five to $10 million check to us. Um, five funds you've mentioned, if you can just paint that picture, because as the founder of the, the firm, we've covered this topic in various ways on this series before about sometimes venture capital firms often look and sound like a startup itself who's raising capital, like where each round in theory should be larger. Um, we've also had some theories and or not theories, but investment firms say we found our sweet spot in terms of the amount of money that we want in a fund and we could have chosen to raise more but we just purposely didn't because it works for us um, and then other typical ways of looking at it is you know you start a fund and it's i'm making up the numbers it's 10 million and then it's successful and then you do 50 million and then it's successful and then you do 150 million and then it's successful and then you do 500 million or 250 whatever it may be what did your five funds look like and, and tell us about that that journey of raising those individual funds, did it evolve, change, grow? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a, those are all really good points, uh, uh, Giovanni. So let, let me just kind of give you the, the numbers. So the first fund one was about $20 million. Uh, fund two was then $36 million. It was actually higher than that, but 2008 hit us. Uh, so we released some of the limited partners or investors from their obligations because we didn't want to hurt them in any way. So the next fund was fund three. That was a $69 million fund. So we went up 50%, then we more than doubled. Uh, we added on to that a $22 million fund, which was an extension fund of fund three. And that became too successful too fast. So we had to close it because one of our investments uh, had significantly multiplied and eventually ended up being acquired for over a billion dollars. Um, so uh, that would have been 91 million together. And now we're raising 175 million. So we've really gone up. Let me speak to the real, another really good point you made, which is the ability to put capital to work. Biostar has been invited in huge deals and actually led some of the deals for a minimal investment, two to $5 million. So we're an invest in an investment that has Goldman and Elliott management. And we've been in investments, of course, with NEA and Deerfield and Phillips and Boston Scientific. We've been able to lead or co-lead due to our domain expertise or clinical expertise. Um, but we could have put a lot more capital to work. So that's why we're going up on our fund. Our investment piece would go up 
it'd be the same companies. But instead of our end ownership being 3% when we've given so much, if we can do 6, 12, or 20%, that's our ultimate goal. So that's why we're increasing the amount of capital in our in our funds. Thank you for that clarification. And tell me what's an easy in terms of describing what Biostar Capital invests in, is it easier for me to ask you what doesn't Biostar Capital invest in or what does Biostar Capital invest in? It's easier to say what we don't invest in. Um, uh, so, so let me uh, go through that. We try not to invest in what I call the uh, no man's land. So, so the way I break this down, Giovanni, is the early stage um, it is a really ripe stage because you know, buy a start at $175 million fund or a $100 million fund can write a check for a million dollars or $2 million, and we really care about it. Um, the big guys don't want to write a check for one or $2 million. It, it, it doesn't matter to them. They can get a 50x return on that. and It's not going to move their number. So that's a really important uh, piece for us. And when we exit those early stage companies, all we need to do is a proof of concept. So we can do an animal study in a first in man, then we will sell that technology. We don't want to build up a marketing and sales firm and compete with Boston Scientific, J&J, et cetera. But it's those companies in the middle, the B, C, the D series that are really scaling up. Maybe they've missed their targets. Their valuations are now 20 to $50 million. You know, and our check size isn't going to make an impact. We try to stay away from that. But if someone that we know is going to do a mezzanine or a pipe round, and we can make a difference by activating our clinical centers, making sure that that technology is seen at the Cleveland Clinic, at Trinity, at Ascension, et cetera, that it's given its time. If we have a conflict of interest, we let that be known. But if we believe that this technology is transformational, but it's hard getting in the hallways of these big centers, and we can help that, we would jump into the pipe or the mezzanine or the pre-IPO or the IPO round. So that's kind of where we are bifurcated. I'd say 25 to 30% are early stage, uh, 70% is probably in the late, what, what many would deem later stage technology. And is that volume of investments or is that vo- is that? number percentage based on capital invested because it takes more capital to invest in the 70% than it does in the 20 to 30%. Yeah, that's another good question. I I would say that uh, capital wise, we're much more capital intensive late. Uh, Number wise, we're probably about one third in the early stage, but then we can make an impact with a one or a $2 million, $3 million investment. So not to build it, well, you, you made it clear that you don't play in the no man's land. So that's clear. So the early stage investments you do do, and is that pretty much limited to a classical series A for a medical device, or do you get involved in seed? We don't like to get in seed and we don't like to get involved in uh, uh, bridge uh, rounds. So we, we prefer to be in a series A since we're somewhat of an institutional investor. That said, we haven't always done that. Um, so I, I was involved, I, I don't know whether we should get specific, but um, I'm on a com- was on a committee at the University of Michigan, where if there was a clinical problem, the medical school and engineering would come together, and they would create a solution to that problem, then they would present to this committee and we would give them non-dilutional grants. Uh, well, one of the presentations I thought was really awesome, uh, but the committee didn't, 
which showed you how much impetus I had on the committee. Um, so I, I went to this university and said, hey, you know, maybe we can take this off your hands. And uh, we seeded the company. And now we're going in a first in man that's doing exceptionally well. So that would be a rare example of kind of a seed money that we put in to incubate the technology before it was ever put into a human being or an animal. So then classically, then, if, that, if that's an exception, even though you can do that and have done that, um, to put you in a box, just for the ease of conversation for listeners, on the early stage, if you're talking about classical medical devices, class two, class three, you are the series A investor. Correct. So your, your friend that I believe was from the Netherlands, he raised 1.8 million, you know, angel, family, et cetera. Once he has proof of concept, intellectual property, something that's tangible, um, and he'd say, hey, um, I think this is worth $5 million, Dr. Cannon. We want to raise 10 or 12 million. You know, we would put together a term sheet for a Series A financing, but we generally wouldn't get involved in that early seed round. Okay. And then on the early, so we're moving past seed. And then if we focus on A, because A, I've, I've found out through a lot of other entrepreneurs who have been there, there's now Series A1, Series A2. <laughs> There's pre-seed, there's post-seed, there's C1, there's all these different names. Um, when you say early stage, and we'll call it Series A, do you invest, and you said something tangible, are you investing in a Series A to get a medical device, to design freeze, to possibly get in first in human, and then when they have to go raise their Series B to do a clinical trial, that's when you disappear? No, no. If we're in the A, we stay in the A. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. If we're in the A, we will generally stay in the BC, you know, D or whatever. But if someone comes to us in the middle and says, we already have this much capital invested, we think the valuation is this, you know, do you want to be part of the syndicate? You know, they're already at a $50 million valuation. They're kind of in no man's land. They've got to prove through a whole, you know, investigational device. They've got to do a randomized control trial. I would rather see them <laughs> fail or be successful and then get involved. So that's the area we, we wouldn't uh, get involved in. And in regards to your Series A, how I would define it, Giovanni, is Biostar comes in and we would try to get someone else with us that has you know, big money uh, you know, or you know, a fund you know, rather than just a multiplicity of individual investors and high net worth individuals. So we would try to build that syndicate. Okay, and, and a Series A, once again, once you invest in the Series A, the goal of a Series A would take that technology to a design freeze, right? I mean, classically speaking, design freeze, maybe even first in man, um, certainly VNV, that kind of stuff, but beyond prototype, and then certainly not in a full-blown pivotal. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. The, the other thing um, that I'd like to touch on is we would want to be in sync with the CEO. So if the CEO wants to go IPO or SPAC or whatever, we would be relatively resistant to that early. What we want to do is we want to say, hey, get to your proof of concept, of course, get us patents, put a picket fence around those patents, get us proof of concept in man, maybe five, 10, and then be with us to sell this. And we might want to only sell it only. I mean, we may want to sell it for $300 million and then you exit. But if the CEO looks at this as, well, this is his life for the next 10 years, we don't want much to do with a company like that. Clear. Very clear. Um, I was going to let it go, but it's more for my education. Hopefully it will benefit listeners, but I just didn't, I, I need to wrap my head around it. Two minutes ago, and the, and the, and the listeners will never see this, but through video, you did the, like the quotes on an institutional investor, like... <laughs> 
investor. For my definition of institutional investor, are you an institutional investor or are you not? I think we're an institutional investor because we uh, we are leveraged by other people's investment in us. So to me, we have a very strong fiduciary responsibility to those investors. If you're an angel group, you don't really have anyone else's money. It's your money that you're putting in. So as soon as someone takes someone else's capital and is responsible for that, to me, that's an institutional investor. And that's great clarity. So that's that's either your or the objective definition of an, of an institution, institutional investor, taking someone else's money and investing on behalf of that. Exactly. And the reason I did the quote signs that that uh, our <laughs> listeners can't see is because it's hard to say Biostar is an institution. I mean, I don't think we are an institution, but I think we meet the definition of an institutional investor. I think you're just being a little bit too humble. I mean, you got a hundred and five funds and you've made investments around the world. I think that's pretty impressive to me. Well, thanks. Uh, I appreciate that. So I, I'm, I, I want to jump into a topic because I think this is... Um, it's really interesting and, and I want to get your take on it. So we've on the podcast series, we've covered the topic of physician investor numerous ways. We've talked about how a physician becomes a VC, meaning joining a VC firm. Um, we talked about the value adds of being a, a, a physician investor. Once again, typically joining a firm that's already in existence and um, not too long ago, we broke down on a podcast the demystification of the physician entrepreneur, and we had a, an amazing guest named Keith Metheny, who is a ENT down in Dallas, in Texas, um, and and we just he's a serial entrepreneur, and and we took it from being a physician and then physician innovating and wanting to innovate and becoming an entrepreneur and the challenges and the struggle of like, okay, you're taught to mechanically save a life or perform a surgery. And, and it's just healthcare throughout medical school without any business one-on-one whatsoever. And you go into school and pretty much until you're in your early thirties, once again, without any really strong business acumen, if any. Um, and then all of a sudden, if you want to be an entrepreneur, you're just kind of tossed out to the wilderness and the, and, and the wolves, if you will. Um, and you don't really know what to do. And, and then there's this physician entrepreneur um, stereotype of physician entrepreneur stereotypes that we all somewhat have our own stereotype in our head about. And, and Keith did an amazing job of walking us through what is it like to raise capital, learning that business 101 from ground zero, being a physician who wants to get involved in innovation, et cetera. So we've covered the physician entrepreneur, um, but I'm fascinated because you're not only a physician who is a venture capitalist, which there are, um, I don't want to say a lot of them, but they exist. And we've had some of those amazing stories on this series, but you're a physician who started a VC firm. Um, you mentioned earlier on that you dabbled in innovation and, and, and I know that you kind of gave the high level of that. So I'm just kind of putting this story underneath the microscope at this point. Like how did you go from physician, forget the physician entrepreneur you just went from physician to VC. And then how did that learning curve of like, not even just business, but you, you went on the real business side, not innovation who has to go raise capital and then still be somewhat innovative. You went to the pure business side where you're tied to returning capital for investors and all this other stuff where it's pure business, obviously with a healthcare spin and, and a, an investment thesis of helping patients. What's that 
let's let's demystify the physician VC founder VC. How'd you start a VC firm? Why? Yeah, no. So good questions. That that physician entrepreneurial thing that 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 really honestly always bugs me a little bit. Uh, but but it's out there. I, it's out there. It's absolutely clear, and I run into it all the time. So so let me just uh, say a couple things that may help our our listeners understand. So. I overlapped for about 15 years. Okay, so I never really left medicine or physician. I overlapped it with VC, then learned a lot, and then was able to, to, to not be a practicing physician and only a VC. Very early on, in fact, in Fund One, I, I knew that part of my limit was understanding the business world. So I surrounded myself with really good business people. Um, uh, one of my first partners was a, uh, a Harvard grad, Harvard MBA. And, and that doesn't mean he, he's great, but that just gives you a feeling that, you know, he, he went through the more typical, you know, business, you know, kind of a pathway that a lot of people uh, do. Uh, the other was West Point grad and then a, a, a Wharton MBA. I, my partner now uh, it was the CEO of Boston Scientific the CEO of Corindus, uh, Renee Massey, who's a Stanford grad, Wharton MBA. So I, we really balance that physician enthusiasm, that physician understanding of patient, that 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 lust for innovation that is really cool with, yeah, but is it a business? Can we return capital back to the investors? So um, the typical physician entrepreneur that thinks he's smart enough and that can do everything, I'm weary of myself, but I'm also really weary of that MBA uh, or that guy that graduated from medical school and then left it because he they might have wanted to make money. Um, and I don't have a problem with that, but but that doesn't mean you really understand what it's like to walk in the physician's shoes in a hallway and take care of patients and understand regulation and reimbursement and you know hospital systems. So um, I I think the physician innovator that wants to run his company, be the CEO, take it from his idea all the way through, uh, boy, the chance of that success, I'd say, is less than 1% or 2%. Um, and, and that, I think, sometimes given the, the physician innovators the wrong, uh, the wrong feeling. The other thing, physicians as investors, well, they spend their whole life in the hallways. So they may invest in, you know, ABC, you know, real estate in Arizona and haven't done diligence. I think what we're talking about about medical device innovation, though, Giovanni, is probably 30%, and I need to look, but I bet 30% of our companies, the original ideas are from physicians because they know what's wrong. They, they know what the problem is. They know what the physician has and what the patient needs. So they may have an idea and then they get in the digital health, they get in a software, but it starts from, you know, the doctor that says, you know, I need to follow this, uh, this patient in physical therapy. Um, you know, um, my, uh, this is an example, uh, orthopedic elderly lady that hurts her shoulder and can't do physical therapy and is too sick to go through uh, surgery uh, or too frail. So if you put a bioabsorbable pillow in there, a cuff to raise the bone from the bone for a period of time as a pillow that will biodegrade over six to 12 months, you can then do physical therapy. 
So those kind of ideas often come from docs. I don't know how an engineer sitting in some area would ever think of something like that because they don't know the clinical situation. So that's a long answer to maybe a short question. No, and I love that. And you've you've touched on why physicians add so much value. And you alluded to it about how, because you overlap for all those years that you did um, learn along the way without necessarily leaving the hospital setting or the physician setting. And you had some great partners, obviously intelligent, very smart partners on the business side who've come along with you as well. Right. Just, I, I like to do a lot of mechanics on, on this series, just because there's so many molecular questions that people just either take for granted and wish they could ask, or then they just forget or, or just don't know. And they won't ever ask, but like, you're a physician one day and you decide whether it's with a crew or by yourself that you're going to start a venture fund. I mean, there's opening up and, and legalizing a company. There's figuring out the regulations from the financial side. There's working with lawyers to get the documentation to make sure that when you're taking the money, it's correct. I mean, and you were still intervening on at two o'clock in the morning, saving people from heart attacks. How do you go through that? Like, how do you start a venture firm? And I don't need like the, the granular is that on that stuff. It's just like, how did you learn that business aspect? And what is that like? What's it like starting something like that? Um, if you ask my wife, it is probably something I shouldn't have done uh, because um, it was a lot of time, honestly, spent away from family, especially since I had one of the busiest practices in, in the state of Michigan. Um, I was lucky enough to not need a lot of sleep, to be just a really driven, motivated person, uh, to surround myself with really smart people, a lot smarter than me, which is, I think, part of the arithmetic that you really need. And uh, I met uh, actually a professor uh, from University of Michigan, Dr. David Brophy, and I went to him and I said, uh, you're a professor in the business school, Ross School. Uh, I'm a doctor, but I, you know, I want to start a venture capital group that's going to invest in cardiovascular and orthopedic uh, innovations that make a difference in patients' lives. And he said, why, you know, why do you want to do that? You know, you're making good money. You're a cardiologist, you've been through medical school. Are you sure? And uh, he, you know, helped set me up with the correct attorneys, the correct people, and uh, eventually got it together. The first four years were rough raising the first fund. Um, and I, I don't remember the capital requirement, 200 to $300,000. You don't get a penny of it back until you raise a fund. So it was a lot of uh, personal you know, leverage at the time. I don't know if I'd do it again. Giovanni, it would have been a lot easier probably to join a fund that was there. Um, but uh, there weren't a lot of funds like, this that were dedicated to making a difference in patients' lives. You know, most venture capital firms are dedicated to having a return on investment and then getting a return on investment by looking at technology that will be successful but will return a lot of capital back. We we did it a little bit backwards. Did it help out in any way? You mentioned earlier with some of the innovation and reviewing innovation for Boston Scientific, Medtronic, some of these bigger guys, right? And then all of a sudden you mentioned earlier a little bit about your LPs on some of these big guys, our LPs. Just building those relationships earlier on, on that innovation front where you kind of got associated with that, did that help out when you went to go, hey, Boston Sci, I got my legal documents in place and I have 40 million Yes, I, you're absolutely right. I, I probably minimized that too much. You've hit on a really important uh, piece of this. So 
I was on the scientific, then the strategic advisory boards of companies like Boston Scientific, Medtronic, Abbott. What we would do or what they would do is uh, put 15 to 20 thought leaders from around the world and um, um, they would have companies present to this group or they would present a company and they would say, what do you think about this? So I, I could listen to uh, a, a guy like uh, Marty Leon, you know, who, who's at Columbia and is, he's got to be one of the smartest, most successful people in the world and has changed cardiology in terms of, of what he's designed. I could hear a Marty Leon talk. I could hear a Peter Fitzgerald from Stanford talk that was one of the inventors of ultrasound in human beings. Uh, a guy like Juan Granada, who's an expert in animal studies. So I, I had the ability then to kind of pull this together and say, boy, what this group is giving to, you know, this strategic for a nice hotel room, a cognac and a cigar. Wow. You know, and then we wouldn't know what they were going to do, but six to 12 months later, I'd read how they, you know, acquired this company for a billion dollars or, or something like that. So that's when I said, boy, we can really, you know, make a difference. We know what we're doing. But importantly, I saw so many companies that just made mistakes along the way that were simple mistakes. You know, they, they used a canine model instead of a Yucatan mini swine model. So, you know, I had those guys that were there. So we could go to those startup companies and say, Biostar can bring to you some of these 40 to 50 thought leaders in these areas, leverage our expertise. But you know, we want some common shares and we want to be able to participate. We'll help you syndicate. Um, so that's where I saw the, the vacuous spot that we could fill. And it was because of those strategic advisory boards and scientific advisory boards that I was compelled to, to, to do Biostar. And then ultimately able to pull on some of those strings to be able to even raise your fund, right? Because... Yeah, I not only pulled on the strategic swing strings, but those guys that were in the room, <laughs> I went to them and said, Hey, do you believe in physicians? Do you believe in innovation technology? Do you want to impact the healthcare space? They all said yes, and it might have been hard to say no to Dr. Cannon. And you know, so uh, you know, I hit them up too, Giovanni. I may hit you up too, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> I'm waiting. Let me know. I, I wanted to go back on the the Series A level of which you invest in, and and close off on a major topic here um, before we get into a little philosophy and then officially close. Um, it's a, I don't want to say cliche topic when we talk about venture capital, especially in med tech, at least in all the articles and everything that I'm regularly bombarded with on LinkedIn. Um, but valuation, this idea of valuation, everyone wants to talk about valuation for pre-revenue generating companies, right? So when they're post-generating, post-revenue generating um valuation can be solved with numbers of revenue and multiples, et cetera. And it's just much more of a financial science that's visual with things right in front of you, very tangible. Um, and then it's a valuation, pretty straightforward, somewhat. When you're in a pre-revenue generating company, a startup, and Series A, and I know we're not talking about seed anymore, we're, we're into the companies that you look at. <clears throat> When you throw a term sheet out of the Series A company, are you shooting from the hip and hoping that they accept? Or what is what is your thoughts on valuation? What advice would you give 
to entrepreneurs running a startup company, a med tech startup company who are about to go out and raise their series A and they're gonna go, and maybe it's their first time, maybe they were able to do their seed with family offices and high net worth individuals or only angels. And they took it all on a convertible note, for example, right? And they haven't had a priced round. And they're about to go ask Dr. Cannon for their first equity round of financing um, in their series A. And they have literally zero clue of what the valuation of their company is with yeah. the exception of the fact that they're just making it up because they saw something somewhere. How do you value a company? Yeah, well, that's a really hard question, uh, Giovanni. I, you really have to know what you're doing in the pre-revenue areas. And my experience uh, would my experience would say to those founders, you know, right now, the valuation of your company is what a willing buyer and a willing seller is willing to come together on. Okay, um, look at what you have that's objective. Do you have patents? Not, not that are in the office. <laughs> you have issued patents. That's a value inflection point. Okay. Are, are you in the dream stage where you've got this great idea and you've worked it in the garage or you've got an engineer that's helping you and your company is you and maybe the engineer? Okay. You know, that's not a high valuation. Patents not issued. That's not a high valuation. Um, have you actually been in animals and it works? That's a value inflection point. I see a lot of, I have this dream and this is great and it's going to make an impact. And the TAM is, you know, $20 billion. And I think the valuation is 10 or $20 million. That kind of cuts the conversation because we know right from the, the, the start that we're going to have issues with the CEO. And, and more than that, I, I don't want to tell that CEO it's worth $3 million because then I'm a board member and right from the start, there's friction and that doesn't work. We need to be collaborative. So I would say to the founders, especially if you're going to go to you know, an institution or someone that has other people's money, what do you think the valuation should be? Because it's a partnership. Uh, we're going to invest in you in the company. It, it's not that much to our benefit to knock down the valuation early on because what really matters is what the exit is. You, you know, I mean, that's what really matters. And we're all going to get diluted out as, as time goes on. So don't be so uh, uptight and so firm about the initial valuation. I've seen so many companies stop because the founder thought the valuation was higher than it really was. Um, and that would be my only caveat, you know, to the to the founders is uh, everybody thinks their baby's the prettiest baby, you know, in, in in the carriage. You know, just just remember that. So, you know, a de novo product, for example, or or a super novel PMA where there is no comparative out there, um, okay. where you can't necessarily go to Google and and see a comparison style device who have raised capital or succeeded with an exit or something like that. Um, if for some of these, <clears throat> for some of these that don't have a comparator, that's where your advice really, really resonates and comes in and, and philosophically, like, don't be so hung up on it. What about, I, I've heard advice where people just throw it out really cavalierly. It's like, just go look for something in a comparison. Um, if you're doing the next iterative stent, for example, and it's overly simplifying something. But if you're out there doing a 510K where you can find a predicate device, 
you are swimming in a pool of technology where you might have a new bell and whistle, but it's still a technology that's out there that's fairly well known in the space. Do comparisons work when it comes to valuations, even that early stage at Series A? Yeah, I don't think they do, because if you've got a predicate device out there that's out there, now you're chasing it. You've got to try to capture the market. So if the founder uses that, um, I don't think that's a fair comp. Now, if you talk about an exit value of a revenue producing company and you say they've been sold at 10 to 12 X revenue, that's a fair comp because we know it's going to be accretive to a strategic, you know, in, in such a fashion. But these startups are, are really different. And it, if you say, oh, we can do a 510K, it's a predicate, you know, the FDA loves us. Do you have do you have the FDA that says it's a five ten k, or do you just think it's going to be? If you think it's going to be, your valuation probably isn't where it is. Now we can tranche, you, you know, uh, and we can do, and that's where the Series A and, and A one and A two comes in. You know, a lot of it has to do, I think, with valuations. Um, if you have if if the founder has half the early post money but sells the company for more than 2X or 3X what they thought it was going to sell for, they're far better off not worrying too much about the pre-money and the post-money valuation of an early round. Very good. I'm asking this question because I literally don't know. Um, and it's a mechanical question. Hopefully others can help learn from it if they already don't know, or it just proves my complete ignorance. Um, when a startup is raising a series A and they have a syndicate of two, three, four, five different investors, Mm-hmm. And Biostar Capital or whatever venture capital firm gets a valuation for on a term sheet or a term sheet valuation for this X amount. And that's what your guys are investing in on that amount of valuation. Does every investor in a, in a round invest in the same valuation? Or is it possible that each investor may have a different valuation of which they're investing in? Yeah, no, every shareholder has to be treated exactly the same. So that whatever that valuation is, is the valuation. So as soon as the CEO gets a term sheet, and let's say that it's an uh, $8 million pre-money valuation, and they're going to put 12 in for 20 million, that'd be a a good A round. Um, Everyone has to come in at that. Now, now that said, Biostar asks for, and we get an unusual carve-out often, uh, but we would come in at that valuation because we have to. But we may say, we're going to put a scientific advisory board together, an SAB for you that involves these eight to 12 physicians. And for this, we want X number of common shares, 2%, 3 5% of the company to do that. We then become aligned with the CEO who's also in common. So the venture capital will do preferred, but bios star gets a carve out of common shares. And that's one of the things that makes us, you know, uh, differentiated a bit. And that's because of the clinical aspect and the doctors that we bring to the table. So that's also super interesting. So when I hear these, this terminology from investors, like, okay, I'm raising a series A and I'm looking for someone to set the terms for the round yep. and, and maybe they have a term sheet, but it's not from a lead. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe I'm, I'm even saying it wrong, but how do you, when someone's looking to set the terms or have an investor set the terms, and like you just said, it's an eight money pre, they're raising 12 for a 20 million post. Um, when that term sheet's there, and let's just say it feels good for the entrepreneur and they're like, okay, fine, that, that term sheet works. When they're going out and syndicating that with other investors that they have on the line that they're talking to, 
Uh, they're like, hey, listen, Biostar came in, they set the terms. It's a 20 million post, but 8 million pre, we're raising 12. They're in for five. Um, you know, are you in on these terms? Is that how is that how it works? That's exactly how it works. Now, if the CEO can find another venture capital group that says, okay, well, you've got eight, uh, we'll put 12 in, uh, but that 8 million that you have, we're going to give you a valuation of that of 16. And then you add 12 and now they're at 28 million. That CEO may say, oh, wow, I got a $28 million post valuation instead of a 20, which means every dollar buys less for the venture capitalist. So he's diluted less. He may want to take the higher term sheet. And that's why it's to the benefit of the CEOs to have competitive term sheets. Generally, if he has one though, like Biostar and we agree to a 20 post, we're going to help him syndicate. And he may say, well, I've already raised five of that 12. If you come in five, you know, Dr. Cannon, you know, with Biostar for another five, I've got 10 out of the 12, you know, I can get 2 million from friends, family, and, and important people, uh, you know, or tagalongs, and that'll make the round. Does that ever happen though? So like Biostar sets it at eight and 20, and then someone else comes in, like you mentioned, he gives a $28 million valuation. And the entrepreneur, of course, would rather go for that one and then say, turn around and say, listen, I got this term sheet, but I really want your value add that you bring Dr. Cannon with Biostar. Are you guys in on this terms like that? Yes. So we've been in at lower valuations. Uh, we've been able to capture, you know, the investment in the company, but we've also recently been involved in a battle between two huge venture capital groups that, that Biostar was literally a tag along investor in both because the CEO kind of demanded it. But uh, these two big VCs kept going up on the valuation but some of the terms were, well, we want two board positions. We want the ability to veto, you know. So then the CEO has to look at all these competitive things. Well, it's a company that was in Europe. And I don't want to mention it because it's been in the news. Company in Europe, but we, re, we want it redomiciled to the United States. Well, the CEO may not want to do that. So even though the post money or the valuations may be different, there are parts of that term sheet that are more meaningful than just the money. Uh, so the CEO may pick one or the other. And it's obviously a CEO and the board, not just the CEO in a situation like this. Love that. So I just learned a tremendous amount. I'm hoping the listeners did too. Um, I have one more question before we sign off here. As an investor who has seen thousands of pitch decks and you are a physician by mental training, um, not a business MBA right from the get-go. I've learned that investors have different shaded glasses that they look through depending on their backgrounds, right? Um, when you look at a pitch deck, what's important for you from an entrepreneur to present their company? Is it technology and clinical all about that first, or is it the business plan and where they fall into the ecosystem? You know, for example, what's their regulatory pathway, their clinical, even if it's not 100% wax stamped yet? Do you want to see the business stuff so that you just simply know what you're dealing with and then tell me about your baby? Or are you more about tell me about your baby and then we'll get to the business later? And yeah, what does it look like? Yeah, no, I, I that that's a really important question and a really good one. So, first of all, the absolute turnoffs, okay, or to talk about the total addressable market, to talk about how big it is and what Boston's doing and Abbott's doing. And I get to slide seven and I have no idea how you're going to improve renal function for dialysis patients. 
you know, so the market's huge. There's all these people on dialysis. And I, so, you know, I never get to eight. I just turn it off. Okay. The, the other thing that, that gets me is uh, if I, I think the, the, uh, the entrepreneur, the CEO, <laughs> smoking stuff, you, you know, where, where I see a hockey stick of revenue, you know, for five years. Uh, so I, I'm just gone, you, you know, with that. So what I look for in the deck is first, you know, tell me what you have in the first three slides. And then in the next seven slides, don't shoot yourself in the foot, you know, with these unbelievable projections, with timelines that are totally unachievable, with uh, board members that are on every board available in the world. And I know there's no way they could put enough time in to help this company. But you as a CEO think that their name is going to make me invest when I know they don't have enough time to, to, to be with their kids. So uh, those are the things that turn me off like immediately. I love that. I love that. Okay. <laughs> so then if that is the case, what, what turns you off, then just speak very quickly then to the two, three, five things that you love to see, like a slide that says that speaks to this. Like, what do you love to see then? So, uh, you know, for instance, let's take kidney function. Uh, uh, this company wants to address the huge market of dialysis patients, and we want to improve their kidneys. Um, uh, this is how we seek to do that. Non-confidential. I'm not going to sign an NDA. But we believe that increasing renal vein pressure will flush the kidney tubules out so that they get better blood perfusion. Great. Well, you know what? That's kind of cool. That's not out there. That's an innovation that I can prove. Um, that's something that would fit in. That's something that's probably reimbursable. Okay. Like that idea. Doesn't conflict with anything right now in my portfolio. I can leverage Biostar. So then I'm going to say, okay, what's the timelines? Okay. So this is where the company is now. Well, this guy is at uh, Caltech and he came up with this idea <laughs> and nothing's happened except for hamsters or mice. Yeah, I'm going to pass on that. Do you know what I mean? I but you. if I can see that they've had a million or $2 million and they've proved ABC in this model, well, now I'm starting to say, whoa, you know, this may be where Biostar could really make an impact in this company really would be great in terms of the journey to help treat dialysis patients, make a huge impact on patients' lives. So that kind of thing would interest me. Love that. Love that. Um, final question. You mentioned on the board members and, and not having enough time, you being an investor, sitting on boards, um, understanding the dynamics, board dynamics. Last question, I promise. What makes a good board of director for a medtech startup? A good board of director to me is someone that really is going to be hands on on the company, uh, not just go to a quarterly meeting, uh, you know, and listen to the projections and where they are and then get off the phone. Do you know what I mean? Um, a lot of times that good board member brings experience and expertise in that area, has exited companies and brings more than money to the table, money to the table because you're investing X number of dollars and you want to watch your money does not make a good board member. So I want to, I may want to delete that from this. <laughs> no, 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 leave it in there. They, they, I'm they kidding. Need yeah, okay. They need to hear that. But I, I right. wanted to say thank you so much for your time. I mean, we've, we've covered some really dynamic topics here. We, we demystified the physician 
founder VC. Um, we've understood what the value that a physician brings and also just the just the difference of how you look at technology with those physician eyes than some other more business oriented eyes. Um, it's just interesting and novel to hear. And then obviously the Biostar story and, and certainly your story. So we've, and the valuation, you can't forget about the valuation. A lot of startups up there are very, very important to understand that. So you've demystified a lot for us. You've shared a lot of insight with us. So I wanna say Dr. Louis Cannon, founder, and Senior Managing Director of Biostar Capital. Thank you so much for your time. This is the MedTech Money Podcast series where we demystify, which you've done very well, raising and investing capital in MedTech. Thank you so much for your time. Well, thanks for all you too. Uh, thanks for all you do as well, Giovanni. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at info at projectmedtech.com. Thanks for listening and have a great day.